0: Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical
1: criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims.
0: Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there.
1: Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash SkepticsBibleProject.
0: Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to.
2: I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth.
0: Hello and welcome to the show. This is the Skeptic's Bible Project here with you again. Happy to be here with you, Ben. How are you? I'm doing good, John. How are you today? I'm doing good. So we're continuing on with our uh, Josh McDowell, The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict Extravaganza. Um, I don't know how many episodes it's been so far, maybe four or five, but we're just going to keep going uh, until we get to an end.
1: Yeah, so I think the last thing he was talking about was the historical reliability of the Gospels. He was talking about uh, whether ancient people would be able to decipher truth from myth. He said that communities would be able to decipher um, what was true, and they would filter out what wasn't, and they would protect that truth with a lot of fervor and make sure that it was transmitted accurately. And what John and I laid out was that that doesn't really stand up to the historical um, reality of the early Church, where there was a wide divergence of um, practices, that different communities um, were affirming different Gospels, that they held to different traditions, that there was conflict, um, that there wasn't an orthodoxy that was... um, recognized at the time, that that orthodoxy was uh, something that's imposed um, later, and um, it's really unfair to read it back in the way that Josh McDowell is doing. And um, I just wanted to raise one thing as a, a point of introduction before we jump back in, and that's just um, about something Josh McDowell said about um, communities in the ancient world being able to um, filter out False claims that were made, and it's interesting that he brings this up because Josh McDowell himself um, you know we've we've alluded to it before Josh McDowell has been propagating this sort of um this story that his conversion was based on this quest for truth, and that he traveled around the world to discover the evidence of um, that demands a verdict and came to the conclusion that um, the evidence was sufficient. To uh, for him to change his opinion about the gospel's reliability. And so I just wanted to read this quote from an exposé that I was looking at last, at last night. Um, I don't have the citation, but I do have the quote. What is true that once Josh McDowell became a full-time staff member of Campus Crusade for Christ International in 1964, he did travel as their apologetic representative in Latin America. As best as I can tell, the only international traveling he ever did was to promote religious beliefs, not to investigate evidence. So for some reason, he's been able to propagate this sort of myth amongst the community that he's been going around in, and that myth has not been exposed by that community that has way more access to information to uh, check the validity of his claims now. So it shows that if you have a story that confirms your, your bias, you're less likely to check out that story. That story confirms what you already believe. And so therefore, it does make it easy to propagate legends, myths, stories that are not factually, historically accurate.
0: Yeah, and I think I read that same quote, and um, I kind of alluded to this on the previous episodes that I was uh, dubious of of these claims because it makes so much of a better story to say, I didn't believe it at all, but it was the evidence that changed my mind. But um, when you see the evidence he's presenting here, um, what it reveals to me is that he couldn't have possibly have done a really exhaustive search for evidence because so much of it is easily refutable, and most of it is refuted just by like the consensus of scholarship so it definitely seems like he was more on a quest to write a book that confirmed what he already believed or to persuade other christians that what he already believed was true
1: and in reality the whole way that this not to overly dwell on this point but the whole way that this book has been um propagated and promoted and um has sort of metastasized itself with its claims all throughout evangelical Christian apologetics, um, shows that, again, people are not going to question claims that confirm what they already believe. Um, And it could very easily be the same in the early church. When people are telling them things that they want to believe, they believe them. I, I like so I think that um it just his own story and the historical evidence around his book lays false that claim that somehow communities are able to gauge what is truth and um, decipher in some sort of a way um what is truth from what is false when it comes to stories that are fabrications, you know, and I'm happy to be challenged if someone can validate. Uh, Josh McDowell's claims. I'm happy to be wrong if his uh, testimony is true as well. Um, But it seems as though it's difficult even for outside people to validate.
0: Yeah, and I know um, uh, we talked a little bit about Lee Strobel, who's another uh, apologist that wrote a very similar type book called The Case for Christ. And on this show, we're going to at some point go through that as well. But I know Lee Strobel um, has had a lot of controversy for the exact same reason for... um, presenting his kind of premise for doing this investi- quote-unquote investigation, um, and uh, a lot of what he says turns out not to be accurate. But uh, why don't we continue on and like dive right back into uh, some of what Josh has to say here on his YouTube video where he outlines his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict.
2: They not only wrote as eyewitnesses or recorded eyewitness accounts, but here is a critical key. In the presence of some of the most some of the most hostile witnesses, people that disagreed with him, people who knew Jesus, they knew what he said, knew what he did. Hostile witnesses. They presented this in the presence of hostile, knowledgeable witnesses and said, you know what we're talking about. They not only said we saw these things, but in front of knowledgeable witnesses, they threw it back in their lap and said, you know what I'm talking about. For example, here again, we'll go back to Peter. In Acts 2, 22, he said, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, and notice what he says, A man attested to you. In other words, not just to us. He is standing in front of these hostile people and saying, Look, he was attested to you with miracles and wonders in signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Well, I'll tell you this. If that antagonistic Jewish audience had not seen those miracles and those wonders and signs, literally everything that Peter was said would have been discounted and thrown out. And he would have probably been lucky to make it out of there alive.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, the first problem with this is just that he's taking this account as a historical account, um, which we've already outlined the problems with Luke as the historian, Luke. Uh, with quotations, uh, the author of Luke and Acts. Um, and so he's treating this as if this account that should be in question, um, that is the whole question of what we're talking about, is whether this is a historical account. I mean, maybe he thinks he proved that, and now at this point he's offering evidence um, like based on that already being a historical account. But we've said already these are not historical accounts. I think he's butchering the text in a way too. I don't think that Peter says that in the text even that they saw these miracles. I think he says they're attested to them. So I mean, that he was known for being a miracle performer doesn't mean that he did actual miracles. Still leaves open the question to whether Peter is right about his claim, if you take this account, even as historical. It's all it is, is just saying something that would have been a rumor about who, how we understand the historical Christ anyway. So I think he's, he's on the one hand doing bad uh, biblical exegesis, and on the other hand, like, it's really bad historical analysis.
0: So again, um, I think a lot of this quote-unquote evidence works pretty well to bolster the faith of people who already believe, but it's just not very convincing to um, historian scholars or even skeptics like us.
1: I also think it's like, uh, an important point to make that um, you shouldn't just assume that your sources are innocent, um, that they don't have a perspective that they're bringing, that um, Paul could not be dishonest. It, it's just a bad assumption to make. We don't know that these sources are honest. Um, And so that's a question that you have to, that you're left, and and I think we talked about it a little bit when it comes to, like, a source like Josephus. Josephus. Um, It's not enough to just treat Josephus as a completely honest historian. You have to, like, account for the biases and the historical limitations and the problems that are contained within Josephus, and I think we'll talk about this more, and um, I can go into more detail when it comes to, for example, the Church Fathers, but... Um the gospels don't claim to be innocent historical renderings of events what they claim to be are polemics in order to make you believe um and so it's important to read them with that um through that lens that that's what they're they're trying to do and to um just make the assumption that we have so again it just doesn't stand up to the evidence to claim that we have um, sources that we are, were written by people who claim to be Christians, and so therefore those sources are honest. We have a lot of sources, um, we have a lot of um, early um, books, letters, etc., that are written by people who claim to be Christians that we know are completely dishonest. They're written in um, the name of people who didn't write them. Um, they are crafting their own theological ideas, Um into the narratives they're telling um and they bring a perspective that's not um that even if it's speaking from an orthodoxy is not uh an established orthodox perspective from a historical um if you're looking at it historically and so like i'll get more into that but i just think like it's a bad assumption to assume that you have a source even if it's an eyewitness that that eyewitness is just honest like that's just an assumption um, and it shouldn't be an assumption that you start with and then work your way backwards from.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really great point. Um, ben, you know, off air, we were talking about Eusebius, and um, so many Christians rely heavily on Eusebius. Josh McDowell apparently relies heavily on you know the early church father Eusebius. Um, but it's there's an example of you know historians and scholars um, seriously question. Much, and, and including, by the way, Christian scholars seriously question uh, the genuineness of Eusebius. He seems like he's being deceitful in many places. Yeah, I think you framed it perfectly. That's exactly what I was going to say. Um, the, I mean, the very he's begging the question. The very question is: Is this actual history? Um, the claim by the critics is that it's not actual history. That this is, um, you know, this is written after Jesus' life. Um, to tell a particular story to a particular um, congregation or a particular group of believers. And um, so you can't take it historically accurate. And the way he answers that is by just assuming that it's historically accurate. The second problem I have with it is we don't have the testimony of anyone in that crowd. Like you, like you said, Ben, assume that uh, Peter actually said this. How do we know the people in the crowd weren't like, we never saw any miracles? Yeah. What are you talking about? So, like, yeah. we're only we're only seeing one side of this. Um, now, the other thing that's important is that in this time period, everyone believed in miracles. I mean, every like I said in the previous episode, um, most historians just include miracles casually in along with their normal history of events. So, um, and there was all kinds of uh, miracle workers. There was magicians. Uh, mentioned in the New Testament, it doesn't say that they didn't actually do magic, that they didn't actually do like supernatural things. It's actually assumes that they did do supernatural things. The Magi come to visit um, Jesus at his birth. So magic was kind of like intertwined into first century, uh, into the first century Middle East. And um, it shows up in all kinds of writings all over the place. And yeah, in our time to say, hey, we saw that guy do a miracle. You guys all saw that do a miracle. It would really stand out to us as being something unheard of. But in that day, it was kind of a a common belief that these things were going on all the time like healings and casting out demons and things that uh, today, nobody, um, most people, uh, most average people on the street don't believe in at all. And John is absolutely right. There were other um,
1: people who were claiming to be able to do miracles, even in the Bible. Um, There are other uh, people who we know about that are contemporaneous with Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah. And this whole period was—and we'll probably talk about it a little bit later when when he talks about the Messiah—this was a period of Messianic fever um, around Palestine. The Messiah was expected to come and liberate the Jews any day, and people— all had their particular messiahs. So, like, even these claims would not have been something radical, or um, they would not have been so uncommon in that day of all the messianic figures. And there were certain motifs also that would go along with telling stories about these messianic figures. There would be certain things you would expect from these messianic figures. And miracle workings would be a sign that the person was, like, truly from God. And that's the purpose it serves some places in the Gospels, too. And also that In the gospels we also have people accusing jesus of being an agent of uh satan and using the power of satan to do miracles so a claim to do miracles even in the bible is not necessarily a claim of anything um divine because uh, people assume that even demonic people could do miracles
0: yeah and even the audience that peter is talking to there um they didn't believe these are jews that did not accept jesus and um and we don't have their testimony. We only have this one-sided uh, version of this story, um, if it is even historically accurate. Even in the Bible, you have and the resurrection account, I believe it's in Matthew, where it says that uh, Jews made up the rumor that uh, Jesus' disciples had stolen the body and that the resurrection didn't happen. Um, and that rumor persists to this day, something to that effect in the Gospels. And... Um, so you do have evidence that uh, critics of Jesus were denying the miracles, uh, if you are to accept this as historical the way Josh McDowell does.
1: Yeah. So on the one hand, I, I'm hesitant to even like give any historical validity to this account, but it's also like important to, if you're going to claim hist- historical validity to this account, well, ha- where is Luke getting this source from? Who was there that Luke is talking to? Luke is not... Present when Peter's talking. Like, where's the tie between Luke and Peter where we know that he's getting um, this speech that Peter made from Peter or from another source that's there? There's just no continuity of proof that Luke has any historical knowledge of this besides some sort of a story he was told um, that could have come from anywhere, that could have been embellished a million times before whoever this author was wrote it down. Um, It's like this assumption that it's an eyewitness. Um, we said, is belied by this sort of omniscient view of everything that's going on. Like, he knows all the words that Peter said. He knows all the words that Paul said. He knows about all the historical events that he wasn't present for. Like, none of that proof is made by Josh McDowell. And I just think it's also interesting that in all of this, there's never any outside historical sources to validate any of this stuff. Like, we don't have Josephus saying... There was a guy, Peter, who made these crazy claims about uh, this miracle worker, um, and the Jews were rightly appalled. No, there's no outside validation, only internal validation through the Bible, which we were... All, that's, again, like John said, is begging the question. The whole question is the historical accuracy of these accounts.
0: Yeah, and uh, Josh McDowell made a big deal about the manuscript history and the early church father quotations and the, the the number of manuscripts that we have and afterwards he said now this doesn't tell you that the text is true It just tells you that it's what the original authors wrote, which is not true. It does not actually tell us what the original authors wrote, and we talked about that in the previous episodes. But he he is right to say that doesn't mean that the stories are true. And I've been waiting for him to bridge that gap. Okay, now get to the the point where you're going to give me the evidence that the stories are true. And the way he's doing that is just by reading the stories and assuming they're true.
2: But what does history show This happened? Thousands were added to the church. You see, it was presented in the presence of knowledgeable people, where if they would have dared to depart from the truth, the very community itself would have corrected it. And so the community became a powerful corrector of falsehood.
0: I just want to address this point that the uh, community, they would have corrected this. They wouldn't have let these falsehoods get away. We talked a lot about this in the last one, so I don't think we need to go on too much about it, but um, again, you're just left with this problem of uh, that's not what the evidence shows from the early church. Not only do we have lots of differing opinions, uh, which shows that um, the way that they corrected it was often by writing their own gospel or changing the gospel, and that's what I want to talk about now is redactions in the New Testament. The whole point of a redaction or an interpolation is when an editor comes along after the fact and says, I don't really like what this original author was saying here. I'm going to add a verse here to clarify it or to alter the meaning of it. And we know that that happened. So if the early church was such a great uh, doing a great job at self-correcting, why do we know for a fact that there was additions and alterations made to that original text?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that the... Um Ehrman has two really like foundational books, um, Jesus Interrupted and Misquoting Jesus, that are like that lay out just the historical case for the way that and then there's a more scholarly um book that looks at like every text um that he and I think uh Metzger might have done with him too about the uh corruption and restoration of scripture. And um they're all great. I mean they show that. Literally, there was a process of scripture being changed, and uh, like sometimes it was accidental, um, because people were using, and and that's sort of what Josh McDowell focuses on, um, but like sometimes it was in- extremely intentional, and that's what John was talking about, and it was a matter of people going through and. That happened with the texts that we have, and it happened from the texts that we have the earliest copies of all the way into um, every time the text was copied, at every iteration um, and stages of the the text, historically speaking, not every time the text was changed, but like the texts were changed. Um, Different scribes added different things, and that that became copied, and that's why you have three major traditions of texts that go back, they try to trace back to their earliest roots that they can. Um, that doesn't mean that there wasn't even more divergent texts before that. There were. Um, you can just make that assumption based on what we see from the history that we can see. Um, but then there's also the redaction that um, John is talking about that happens in the Gospels themselves, where you have early Mark with a skeletal story, and then you have Luke and and Matthew adding their own editorial uh, components to that story. Or you have a passage like where Jesus um, heals uh, heals a a person and gets angry at them. This is interesting because there's actually a textual variant. Um, He either gets angry or has compassion. So some of the early copies have angry, some of the early copies have compassion. This is in Mark. And then in Matthew, Jesus has compassion. So clearly... Uh, Matthew made an editorial change, and then I think in Luke, there's no mention of Jesus's mental state at all. So both of those authors read that Jesus was angry, which scholars think is probably the most early uh, form of the text, and thought that it was a problem, and therefore changed it to a more a less problematic version of the text. In Matthew, getting compassion, and in Luke, no reference at all. So it happens even in the Gospels themselves, um, as... The later authors of the Gospel took their earlier sources, they changed them to fit their own theological meanings and changed them to fit their own narratives. You see it reflective in a million different places, and it's another thing that you'll see if you just go, again, you don't even have to read Ehrman's book. All you have to do is get a synoptic parallel and start reading the passages, Mark to Matthew to Luke or Mark to Luke to Matthew, and just see how the changes are made. And you can see it for yourself in the Bible. You don't have to read anybody's commentary. You can just see it happening. And there's just a bunch of, I, I think we have alluded to this too, there's like this um, omniscient narrative perspective that's given in the Gospels that just doesn't fit with eyewitness testimony. There's no way John can know the conversation between um, Pilate and Jesus that takes place in Pilate's home like there's just, no, he's not an eyewitness to that conversation. Um, So it just creates a lot of problems. They're witnessing events. They're bearing witness to events that even internal to the, the story of the gospel, they couldn't have witnessed.
0: Yeah. The omniscient narrator is a very important point. The uh, narrator of the gospels knows what all the characters are thinking. It knows uh, what Pilate's wife dream is about. Um, it, It can describe scenes where there's clearly would be no other witness uh, there um, to record what's going on. Um, And so, yeah, even internal to the uh, literature itself, um, it's obvious that these are not um, eyewitness accounts. The claim that they are eyewitness accounts, it's important to note also that uh, the names of these Gospels didn't appear on the books until centuries later. They were just anonymous um, Gospels. Uh, circulating around through the churches. And uh, what I think Josh McDowell is not factoring in here is that Orthodoxy did not exist yet. What became the Orthodox Roman Catholic Church didn't exist in the first century. So what you have is you have the Ebionites, you have uh, all kinds of different sects, and we've talked about this in a lot of different episodes, and they were at this point still kind of like hammering out their ideology, and like like Christianity had not yet Um, condensed into one form. So yeah, you actually have a kind of infighting that was going on in the Bible itself. One example that I've used before on the show, but I'll say it again quickly, is uh, James and Paul. You have Paul saying, we are saved by faith alone, like works plays no part at all in our salvation. And then James apparently reads this and says, this is ridiculous, we are saved by works, how can faith save us? So I think, and a lot of scholars agree with me, James is writing against Paul, and Paul's writing against that, that whole community. Um, and that's why there's this huge conflict in Paul about how do we take the Old Testament law? Do, do we still have to follow it or not follow it? But that's, that's for another discussion, I guess. So this whole idea of some kind of like this orthodox singular voice with, with a self-correcting mechanism that Josh McDowell is assuming here um, is just bogus, and it's not backed up by any of the history.
1: Yeah, I mean, even to complicate it further, you're absolutely right, like, it's just the wrong way to read the Bible to read it like in that monolithic, singular voice, because it is, there's divergent perspectives. If you read the Gospels and try to make them all have exactly, saying the same thing, then you're going to miss what each Gospel writer is saying. And then there's also the further complication of even the ideas of heresy and proto-Orthodoxy we so intermixed in sort of like the ether of the ideas of what were are going on. I mean, that's one of the things the Dead Sea Scrolls shows, is that even much earlier than Gnosticism, the ideas of Gnosticism and the ideas of Christianity were already sort of like part of, like present in a proto-form in Palestinian thought. And Making these clear demarcations between like this later Gnosticism and aspects of the Gospel of John, like, is drawing a false line that happened at some point much later in history. So, people falsely say the Gospel of John or John was a Gnostic. Like, I don't think that that's an accurate view, but. To think that there weren't ideas that were eventually going to become Gnosticism that were also present in the Gospel of John is also not a correct view. Like, those ideas had not yet been outlawed, and so they were part of the thinking of people, the same way that Greek ideas about um, cosmology influenced the way Paul formulated his theology. Things don't exist in a vacuum. Part of what the church theology did was demarcate these lines of thought um, and try to set up boundaries. So this was considered heretical, and um, but there wasn't any type of line to um, set that apart in early Christianity. You couldn't look at it from that time period and say, like, These guys are the Orthodox, and a bunch of heretics are on the fringe. It was all intermixed, and it wasn't clear who was right. It was a battle that was taking place in ideas to decide who was going to be Orthodoxy.
0: Yeah, I think that um, you also have to understand that, like, the same way we see today, like, the way Christians do Christianity in Europe is very different than the way Christians do Christianity in Africa and all around the world. They, everybody has their own like unique flavor and even belief sets. And that was happening in the early church where these different regions, you had the Jews that were, were Christians and they basically considered themselves Jews. And they're like, we have to maintain the law, you uh, have to be circumcised, etc., etc. And then you had the uh, Roman Christians that were fighting against that. And, and then Paul is... You know, trying to bridge that gap. I just feel like Josh McDowell is not addressing that, and again, he's giving kind of this false impression of this. And and Christians do this all the time. Growing up in the church, I remember this. They give this impression that Christianity—it's like it went from Jesus to Peter and Paul to the you know to the first popes to uh, you know on through um, on through the Roman Church, and which led up to the Reformation, and that's where we are today. Like a very straight line. Um, but that's not at all what happened. It was a it was a, a, an extremely diverse religion, and there was massive infighting, um, and a lot of what he's talking about, about the self-correcting mechanism, is really just the production of orthodoxy. Um, that's really how orthodoxy happened. Like People basically came and said, okay, this is heresy, this is not heresy. This book is canon, this book is not canon. And we ended up with the Bible that we have today. But I think discounting that, Um, That actual history is doing everybody a disservice. And even when the church fathers are writing, the
1: earliest church fathers, like the pre-Constantine church fathers, I don't think that their views are privileged in the way that they are. That's again, like a misreading, that's reading history backwards, that's reading back on history and making the assumption that these guys were considered the like authorities in their time. Their positions, in some ways, won out, and so they were preserved in a way that we now think that they were privileged. Their their works were preserved in a way that other people who were not privileged, like Marcion, were not preserved because they were considered heretical. The process of orthodoxy also obscures the amount of uh, diversity in early the early church because a lot of what we have about heresies only exist in the writings of people that are writing against the heretics so we don't even know for sure what um a lot of these heresies believed we know the sort of established version of the story that the church fathers are telling as when they're writing against these heresies so everything when you when you're reading history back this way you should at least acknowledge these problems
2: They appealed to the knowledge of the readers and listeners concerning the evidence that they spoke about. And so I believe that what we have here is literally what Jesus said and what Jesus did. I believe what was written down was true of what Christ said and did.
0: I just want to jump in. He just says, so I believe this is what Jesus actually said. I believe that what was written down is what actually happened. And um, he didn't prove that. Like, he says all this stuff about that happened in the Bible, and then he says, and I believe it's true. And ultimately, I think that's my main point about Josh McDowell here. He's This is not evidence that it's true. This is his assertion that it's true. Uh, That's just a small point.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a small point, but there is a huge gulf between what he's proven so far and what he's trying to claim. Um, So John is right to bring it up. It's like pretty central. He has now, like, gotten through all of his evidence, or, like, the, his evidence that the Bible is reliable, and now he's able to just say the Bible is reliable. But as we've shown, even by his own logic, this is a huge logical leap. He doesn't have anything but the testimony of the Bible to confirm what that he thinks the Bible is accurate. I mean, like, this is a huge, huge logical leap that he's making here, Um And so I think that uh, it's appropriate to bring it up.
2: Because he wouldn't have dared to have departed. The community was there. Even the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, and Christ appeared to over 500 people at one time. And then notice what he says. He said, the majority of them are alive right now. I mean, wow. If he didn't appear to five hundred people, and the majority alive right now, Paul is saying, "Go check it out yourself." He would have been buried.
1: I mean, I think that's like Paul is. I think repeating a tradition that he heard, not something that he knows. And it's it's important to note, Paul is not an eyewitness. Right. Paul is an eyewitness only to his own miraculous personal event that caused him to believe in Jesus. So, by his own admission, he's only ever seen the risen Christ he's just still making claims that are only from the Bible. Um, We don't have the testimony of those 500 people. All we have is a claim that
0: Paul makes about them. A couple problems with this. First of all, which, if the Bible is accurate, which version of the resurrection should we believe? Because the version Paul talks about is different than what Mark talks about, which is different than what Matthew talks about, which is different than what Luke talks about, which is different than what John talks about. And and then when you talk about the Ascension, it's different than what Acts talks about. So every version is different. They all contradict each other. And he's telling, or Josh McDowell is telling us that the Bible is true and accurate, and it's a true recording of what really happened. Well, which which part of the Bible should we believe and what happens when it contradicts? Second of all, I feel like he's misquoting Paul here because Paul doesn't say, you can go talk to those 500 people. Yeah. yeah. And then the last point I'll make it's kind of the point I made before, where, again, we just have to take Paul's word for it. Um, Paul's making this claim, but there's no verification of that claim anywhere else, which is exactly what the skeptic is looking for.
1: Yeah, and even if 5,000 people claim to see... 500. Uh, the res- 500 people claim to see the resurrected Lord, um, a skeptic would say, that, or a scientist would say, you would still need overwhelming proof to believe something that outlandish. It would be much more... There would be a hundred other explanations that would make more sense than that someone actually raised from the dead. But that's not even, again, like John said, what Paul is claiming. Paul is claiming some of them are still alive. That claim is basically saying there are some disciples of Jesus still alive who claim that Jesus rose from the dead. That's not a controversial claim. History would say the same thing. Um, We know there were some people that claimed to be disciples of Jesus who were around when the Gospels were written, or were dying off when the Gospels were written, because it addresses it in the Gospel of John. Like, this is just not a chain of evidence that's convincing. Um, And it's really, if you break it down, it's not making a claim that history wouldn't make. There were, like, it's clear that there were people that believed that Jesus rose from the dead. That's not a controversial claim. And that Paul can say a few of them are alive when he's writing is probably not a controversial claim either. It does not prove that historical validity of that claim itself
0: right and there are people now that claim that they saw Elvis uh, after he died or uh, I'm always hearing about Tupac sightings Ben and it's like d- the fact that somebody claims to have saw seen Tupac that we can go interview today does that mean that Tupac's still alive I mean maybe I don't think so
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's why I said um, on the last episode or the episode before when he was talking about, oh, well, these weren't primitive people, they wouldn't believe a lie. I don't even think we have to posit them as primitive people. People believe lies all the time. People have experiences where they believe that they've experienced something that is just not true, and they will be fully convinced that that's true um, despite all the evidence. And, um, there's a term for it, cognitive dissonance, like, um, and it exists in various stages. And like we said, with alien abductions, there are certainly more recent religions that you can find people to, um, give more historical testimony to, um, than what Josh McDowell is claiming here, but he wouldn't give them historical validity and he wouldn't go to a Benny Hinn convention and claim that real healings were going on, I don't think, um, despite the fact that many ardent people there believed that healings were going on, um, enough to even go to go there in wheelchairs because they hoped that they would be healed. So um, the belief in healing power is not—or belief in miracles—is not something that you have to be an ancient, primitive person to believe in. There are people that believe in it all the time today.
0: Yeah, and so we're—you know, we love diving into the Bible to uh, try to— Analyze these arguments that Josh McDowell is making, but I think in this series we're showing that, like, you don't really even need to do that. Um, this stuff is kind of breaking down without even having to, uh, um, you know, go and analyze the text themselves, just on pure logic.
2: Here you have the apostles, the followers, the intimate followers of Christ. I think you could be fairly accurate in saying 11 of the 12 died martyrs' deaths. You could be very accurate by saying 10 of the 12. Um, I'll say 11 of the 12. 11 of the 12 died martyrs' deaths. The other died in exile, John. But what did they die for? Look, you read the book of Acts. You go back to the early church and the early church fathers. They died for one thing, an empty tomb and the appearance of a man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And in their own words, they said, for 40 days, we lived with him. We ate with him after the resurrection with many convincing proofs. And 11 of the 12 died some of the most heinous deaths in history. Dr. Simon Greenleaf, the man who, you might say, put Harvard Law School in the map, wrote the three great volumes and the Laws of Legal Evidence, the Royal Professor of Law. And in studying uh, military history, he made this statement. There is no equal to what the apostles went through and never once denied. That Christ had been raised in the dead, and they had seen him and lived with him for forty days. Not one of them, in the greatest persecution, and everything ever denied that in torture. He said, "In the annals of military warfare, there is no equal." Here were men that were persecuted, they were tortured, and they never once denied. You could honestly say, "Well, a lot of people have died for a lie," and that's true. A lot of people have died for a lie. I mean you could go back through history and see people that have died for lies later found out it was a lie. And so they see what's the big deal. Well here's the issue when it comes to the apostles. Yes, I will grant it. A lot of people have died for a lie, but they thought it was the truth. They thought it was the truth. Now here's a catch. If the resurrection did not take place, and that for 40 days, these 12 men had not lived with Christ, eaten with Christ everywhere for 40 days. Then they had to know it was a lie. And here's the catch. Yes, a lot of people have died for a lie, but they thought it was a truth. If the apostles died for a lie, to the torture, everything they went, they had to know it was a lie. Whew. I trust them more than most people I've ever studied in history they went through the test of death to determine their veracity
0: i let that clip play for a while because this is the um piece of evidence that i've heard my whole life um as being like you know josh mcdowell's like uh what's the word like a knockdown argument like that no one can defeat and that it's like the ultimate proof for christianity Uh, And then, like, Lee Strobel takes this and runs with it in The Case for Christ, and a lot of other apologists use this all the time. The argument, um, I'll paraphrase, basically says, well, we know the the original followers of Jesus, the 12 disciples, we know they um, died painful deaths, and we know that they believed in the resurrection of Jesus. And um, so, who would go to their death um, for something that was a lie? It's not that someone died for a lie. It's that someone died for something that they knew was a lie. And I understand the weight of the argument. I understand why people are persuaded by it. The reason this falls flat is, first of all, the history, he's bastardizing history. He says 11 of the 12 uh, disciples, the 12 that followed Jesus, died a martyr's death, basically. And um, this is not accurate at all. We have no idea how these people died. And we can go through the the fragments of history that we have, and what you'll find is either no information at all or legendary information that was written centuries after the fact. So his entire argument falls flat right off the bat because we have no idea um, how these people died. Second of all, even if you assume that some of these people did die martyrs' deaths, it assumes a lot. It assumes that they died a death where they had the opportunity to recant Uh, the resurrection, Uh, you know, as opposed to just, you know, being killed for being a Christian, like any other uh, Christian that would have been persecuted at that time. He's constructing a fictional uh, narrative of how these people died, what they died for, and how they could have prevented their death if they just simply recanted, um, as if this is like a Salem witch trial or something. And there's just no basis to believe any of this. So on a, on a future episode, because we don't want to you know, spend an hour going through this, we can actually go through each um, disciple and uh, talk about what we actually know about their death. And spoiler alert, historically, we know actually nothing about their death. What we know are legendary tales written centuries after the fact, usually um, by a church trying to uh, claim uh, some sort of connection to that particular uh, disciple. And um, many of these claims involve all kinds of supernatural tales, like they were, uh, they were boiled in a giant vat, but, but uh, God preserved them and, and allowed them to live. And then um, all kinds of miraculous tales that go along with these things that historians simply don't take seriously. But that's what Josh McDowell is saying here. He uses evidence um, from books like uh, The Apocalypse of Peter, which Josh McDowell himself rejects, as being a legitimate book which means the apocalypse of peter is a forgery it's a lie and it's something that Josh McDowell would acknowledge as a lie yet he's totally fine taking passages from the apocalypse of peter to bolster his claim about the death of the, the deaths and martyrdom of the disciples he's using all those legendary tales as evidence that these people were all martyred and we simply have no evidence to any of that it's, a, uh, it's really deceptive on Josh McDowell's part because he's cherry-picking out parts that support his argument from documents that he rejects, um, like we said, uh, because if you're going to take the um, Apocalypse of Peter of having any merit to it, well, it also talks very clearly about how everyone's going to be saved, universal salvation— very clearly. In fact, um, that's one of the reasons it was uh, eventually rejected by, as canon by Orthodoxy because the Apocalypse of Peter was used as scripture in churches for probably two or three centuries, maybe even more. And um, before it was basically considered like, um, you know, apocryphal and shouldn't be used. So I just think it's super convenient for Josh McDowell to take what he wants when it is supporting his case, but then reject the rest of it.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think a lot of the legends go back to churches that these people allegedly allegedly established. And if you use that as a standard, then you end up with a whole lot of other weird churches all over the world that were established by um, historical figures from the Bible or um, sects of Judaism that were established by historical figures of the Bible. Um, so to, to treat those as historical is just not a good... It's not an assumption that a, an actual historian would make. There are... It would be like treating relics as historical. There's a yeah. lot of relics going around, too, but that doesn't mean that it's a, it, it was historically the actual fingers of the apostles. It just means people like attached value to those fingers that they were carrying around. Um, and I think it's important... So there's really maybe three um, people whose uh, death I think we can nail down from different historical sources that are somewhat reliable, and that's uh, Peter and Paul being put to death in Rome, and James, Josephus talks about James being killed. Um, But other than that, it's, like John said, legendary accounts of um, fantastical miracles that are on the way to eventually martyrdom. And um, if you're going to discount the miraculous accounts... Um, and discount the other information that's floating around, again, in the same atmosphere as all this other stuff um, that you're using to bolster these claims, um, other claims of saint miracles, other gospels about Paul uh, going around with Thecla, um, then I think that you need to be, use the same dubious historical lens when you view these legendary tales.
0: So then let's, let's address the, um, the fact that there were some of these people that very likely were martyred. Um, again, getting back to what I said at the beginning, we're assuming that um, the, the reason they were martyred was because they believed in the resurrection. He really like um, nails it down to this one particular belief, like the resurrection. And um, we have no idea if, if that's why they were martyred um, and we have no idea if they had the opportunity to recant and we have no idea if they did recant. <laughs> I mean, we just have no information about any of this. Um, so for him to use this as this giant proof, it really falls flat. And, uh, Ben, last episode, you made a really good analogy, I thought, to, uh, uh, Joseph Smith. Um, and I thought maybe you could kind of expand on that now in light of what Josh McDowell just said here.
1: Yeah, I mean I think it's an apt analogy. I mean Joseph Smith is within um, you know, 150 years of our lifetime was killed um, you know, because of his belief in polygamy it was like published in the in the paper and mobs came and and before that they were persecuted all over the United States. The Mormons had to run around because people were trying to to kill them um for their beliefs. And Joseph Smith, you know, believes or claim to have gotten golden tablets from an angel. And he didn't recant that belief when faced with persecution. Um, He didn't say, oh, guys, look, I made it all up. No, he was actually killed for those beliefs. Um, And so does that mean that we should accept? I mean, that's much closer to our time. Um, We can, I mean, the Mormon Church has grown tremendously if that's proof that that's true, then, you know, it grew a lot during um, the time period right after Joseph Smith, and uh, it grew a, it's grown into like a, a denominational church almost, you know, one of the most powerful churches in the United States at this point, and maybe
0: in the world at this point. Think about the number of years since Joseph Smith till now. It's been, what, 150 years? So that's right around the time that, like, the New Testament... That's right around the amount of of time between the events that happened in the New Testament and when the New Testament was written. So we're like, for uh, Mormonism, like right now we're in like that New Testament era, like the first and second century. And what's happening? Mormonism is the fastest growing religion in the world. And um, it's spreading all over the world. And um, so... Y- again, you can make all the same claims that Josh McDowell is making that says is a reason that you should think that Christianity is true. Um, you can say Mormonism is true, and actually, because it's closer to our time, uh, we can even establish the evidence even better than we way better than we can for uh, the New Testament. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's also...
1: So, to use a skeptical view, um, if you're gauging evidence for the resurrection and this is your evidence... You would say it's much more likely that people experience some sort of cognitive dissonance in the wake of the the death of the person that they thought that was the, the Messiah, and could have even genuinely believed that they saw the resurrected Jesus. And it would be less likely that they actually saw the resurrected Jesus than that being the case. That it was just some sort of like a, a means of cognitive dissonance, and that's why that's a useful way to look at some of this stuff too. And you can also compare it to the way that people deal with end-time predictions in the modern day. So you have the Millerites, who have their whole fundamental prediction doesn't come true, and that eventually it formulates into uh, the Seventh-day Adventists. And that cognitive dissonance allows them to hold on to that initial promise of the return of Christ as the Millerites, but have that delayed, like inevitably, until it comes true. Um, that's just the way religious belief functions sometimes.
0: Yeah, and um, another thing just sprang to mind is that um, we don't actually know if Peter himself claimed to see uh, the resurrected Christ or James. Um, Paul, we actually have his writing, and he saw a he had some sort of a vision, um, which people still have today. But the idea that um, you know peter was at the empty tomb and then and then saw jesus and and uh, dined with him for 40 days that is uh not something we don't have the words of peter we have people writing after peter was dead that is describing that so again you are uh were putting dubious information on top of dubious historical information to come up with a dubious claim
1: yeah and i mean there's questions even like of how Paul interpreted the resurrected Christ, um, in what sense he thought he was resurrected, and if Paul was using that same standard to um, talk about the way these other people saw the resurrected Christ, then that complicates things further, too. I mean, it's just not as clear as Josh McDowell's making it, but what, all we have is a claim that Paul's making, and like I said, I think I, I talked about before, Like, I mean, this is probably not something that Paul knows firsthand. This is like a tradition that Paul knows that they repeat, like first he appeared to the 12, then to 500. I think that that's what scholars would say about that passage. Yeah, well,
0: actually, scholars consider that to be some form of a creed that was recited, Um, So, which I think goes to your point, that um, you can't take this as um, some kind of testimony.
1: Yeah. It's just not the same thing as eyewitness testimony, and it doesn't prove anything beyond that Paul had heard this from other people. Not that Paul had talked to all 500, not that he had talked to the 12, um, and it doesn't make the claim that—we don't have establishment, like John said, that these people that he's talking about even made this claim.
0: Right. And then to underline all of this, I'll just say again, the resurrection accounts that we have throughout the Bible are all contradictory. Um, like the like the even the creed that we just talked about in First Corinthians fifteen, um, that whole timeline doesn't work with any of the Gospels. So I'm not really sure which history Josh McDowell wants us to accept. All right, Ben, uh, I think that's a good stopping point for today. There's still uh, more to go though. Why don't we uh, end it here? Good night, everybody. Good night.
1: Oh. The Skeptic's Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash skepticsbibleproject and follow us on all social media platforms at skepticsproject. Got questions or comments? Email us at skepticsbibleproject at gmail.com. Ooh.